Therapeutic Radiog for Lead Oncology Podcast. This is podcast number 27. Uh, my name is Naaman Jock Anderson and I'm joined by my fellow host, Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Dr. Richard Simcock, who talked about his career, frailty and the National Survivorship Programme. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So it's our first one back after Christmas and New Year, a little break. Um, so we're very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Ayanna Butt who will be discussing her experience with breast cancer and her work around raising awareness for breast cancer within the Southeast Asian community. Um, hi, Anna. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> good. It's nice to have you. Um, so, please can you tell us a bit about yourself and, um, if you feel comfortable, um, the treatment that you've had as well? Yeah. Um, so, I'm a HR and um, People and Talent Director at a fit-out business in Reading. Um, I have been there for over three years now and absolutely love what I do. Um, I've been doing HR for about, goodness me, about 14 years now. Um, and I think as my career's gone on, I've realised I've loved it more and more um, and found, yeah, found that. I'm very fortunate that I actually do something I love and I know that sounds so cheesy, but a lot of people don't get the opportunity to say that, but I really do. Um, I'm also obviously, like I said, I've, I've had breast cancer. I was diagnosed with stage three, grade three breast cancer when I was 30 years old. Um, in 2015, goodness me to kind of remember that now, feels like it was a lifetime ago. Um, I've, I had no family history. I had, um, I didn't know anybody who'd ever had breast cancer in my family or extended family or friends. Um, I wasn't overweight, I wasn't unhealthy, I had no underlying health conditions. Um, so it, it was a complete shock when, you know, when I found out I had breast cancer and to the fact of how um, advanced the cancer had got. Um, it's not like I found it a kind of small tumour when, you know, I was diagnosed with stage one. Um, and from that, from the treatment, so 2015, and it happened all really quickly, to be honest, I was... Um, I found a lump at home myself after a workout. I made a New Year's resolution, as everyone does, <laughs> to um, work out because I was told I had an underactive thyroid and I had a steady weight all my life and I could feel a few of the pounds kind of starting to come on just after my 30th. And I thought, oh goodness, I can see this is happening. Um, and then obviously I was told I had an underactive thyroid and I was like, okay, I know you need to start working out. Um, I've always had a good kind of... Um, I've always been good with my food, but I've never really worked out. Um, so I made a, a commitment to work out. Um, at the time, my son was only four years old. Um, no, sorry. Yes, he was. He was only four years old at the time. And um, my husband used to do nights and kind of going out to the gym just wasn't something that I could physically do working full time. So I did a workout at home. Kind of, This must have been the first week of January. And um, that late evening, must have been about 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, I kind of scratched the, the lower part of my right breast and um, felt something quite solid and hard and dense. And that's when I went to go on and do a self-examination. Before that, I had never done a breast self-examination, had never spoken about it, kind of no, kind of no um, idea that if it was even important or not to do it. It wasn't a conversation we had. Um, that was on a Thursday. I went to the GP fr that Friday morning, the next day. The following, um, she then referred me and said I would get in, somebody would contact me from the Windsor Parapet Clinic, the breast clinic, in two weeks' time. The following Monday, I got a call to say, could you come in today um, for an appointment? <clears throat> I went in that Monday, I did, uh, they did a mammogram, they did a biopsy, 
they did an examination um, and then the following Tuesday I was literally called in and told I had stage three breast cancer so within a week and a half everything had just yeah the world had kind of turned around um and that that whole year was just um a whirlwind to be honest with you um i ended up having six rounds of chemotherapy which absolutely knocked me senseless i lost my hair eyebrows lashes i gained serious amounts of weight because of the steroids that i had to take in the chemotherapy in itself um i then had to have surgery and then after surgery, I had 20 rounds of radiotherapy every single day for a month, Monday to Friday. <clears throat> um, and that took me up to um, October. Um, I remember saying to my oncologist, because my birthday, my anniversary is in October, a week apart. And I said to my um, oncologist, will I be done on my 31st birthday, for goodness sake? And he said, I'm really sorry, I know you won't, but you'll be done on your before your anniversary. And I finished my treatment a day before my wedding anniversary, which was awesome. <laughs> um, so and that's a date that I will always remember now because it was, it was so close to my anniversary. Um, so it was a nice anniversary gift to be fair to me and my husband. Um, so 2015 was honestly just taken up with um, treatments and more MRIs, more CTs, more biopsies. Um, I always hear people say the hospital became my second home, but honestly, it felt like it was your first home when my home was my second home, and um, because you're in the hospital that much, um, for something or another, it's not that it's blood tests. Thing things happen quite quickly as well, don't they? Um, <laughs> even if it's more routine, they want to get you through the two week wait pathway quicker, or just yeah, that sort of thing yeah. as well. I suppose how was the communication when you were going through it? Honestly, um, when I was diagnosed, the first um, conversation my family had when we got home was, um, I'm the second youngest out of six siblings, so there's a lot of us. <laughs> um, and the first conversation that came out of it was, um, we're going private. I'm not waiting right now. We're not waiting for the NHS. We're not sitting there waiting around for the NHS to give us a, 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 a an appointment or this or that. Because the first three weeks after I was told were spent having bone scans, MRIs and all of this stuff to determine if the cancer had spread because the tumour was, um, they said, over five inches, uh, five centimetres, sorry, and they weren't sure if it had spread um, anywhere else into my organs. Thankfully, they hadn't, hence why the diagnosis was at stage three. Um, so my family were just like, we're not waiting around. And I didn't have private cover at the time. Um, um, and I said, look, guys, don't panic. Let's just kind of sit back and wait let these results come back and if these results come back and they don't start chemo and then there's a huge delay then we'll talk about it then why are we rushing so far they've been absolutely incredible why are we waiting and honestly i can't fault it i think we can be um sometimes quite ungrateful for the, the services that we have to our hand um and how amazing of the job that they do the breast care nurses the the oncologists they were all just phenomenal they really were i think sometimes we get a bad rap don't we in cancer care because it's the the things that go wrong that are more heavily spoken about um when you think of how many people have cancer and go through that cancer pathway and actually in terms of the service that we receive it is pretty phenomenal isn't it and i always kind of obviously working for the nhs you're like i love it i'm 
an NHS brand ambassador, but being a patient and being on the other side of it, I definitely am thankful for that. And you only have to go elsewhere. I was um, on holiday in Hong Kong um, and doing some work. And I always remember I was really, really poorly. And I thought, oh, I can't, I can't not go anymore. I've got to go. And I had tonsillitis, so it wasn't anything serious. But I was just so poorly. And I turned up and they said, no one is to see you until you pay. And I just went, what? What? Like, but so different, isn't it? To just the society that we have here in terms of kind of being able to access healthcare. It really shocked me. And I felt absolutely awful. And I spent an hour on the phone to my mum, my husband, and also an insurance company, just trying to get funds into an account to sh- prove that I could pay for treatment. It was crazy. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you, you really have to, you have to go through something as serious as that to realise, you know, it's very easy to complain about one thing that goes wrong when actually there's thousands of things that are going right with the system. Um, and we, like you said, we have it at our doorstep. We can't just walk into a hospital and say, you know, try to save my life, for goodness sake, and they will do it. There's no question about money or, you know, are you covered or you're not? Where are you from? Nothing. They just look after you. And yeah, they, they were amazing with me. Um, and to be honest, six years on, they still are. Um, I've had a raft of other issues after. I've had to have an oophorectomy last year. Um, because the cancer I had was estrogen positive um, and I had a... A very high chance of getting ovarian cancer and um, so after having ovarian suppression injections for three years and um, i finally gave in last year and had an oophorectomy and um, which obviously has pushed me into a forced menopause what i did three years ago but it's now permanently kind of done that now yeah and um, but the nhs again they've every time i have a scare or an issue or problems or a continuous bone pain which i get quite a bit and um, I'm in within minutes with for scans or MRIs or checks or an appointment or anything. So the aftercare from that perspective has been amazing as well. So I have no no qualms at all with how they've and I don't think it would be any different for anyone else. Anna, can I just ask about your oophorectomy? Yes. Did was that a big decision to make? Was that something that you'd really tried to put off or yeah. was it something that you just thought, Okay, now is the time in my life that I feel I need to make that decision? Um, no, I'll be honest, it was a really difficult decision for me. Um, not because of having kids, to be honest with you. Um, I was told when um, I was going to have chemo that they were going to, because I was young at the age, that I got, the age I got breast cancer and because the cancer was quite advanced, they said they were going to get me with pretty much the strongest chemo they can. And it will knock me senseless, but my body would be able to take it because I'm so young. Um, and that was, it. They, I remember my oncologist saying to me that, um, um, there's kind of pros and cons to getting cancer younger. The, the pros are that your body will be able to fight the strongest medication that we give you because your body's stronger because you're younger. The negative is you've then got more years to live with cancer returning, <laughs> with um, worries of it returning. Um, so I knew very earlier on they had t- gave me the option to do um, um, preserve some eggs. Um, and after thinking me and my husband declined to do it, although at that time we only had one child, um, and because my husband just said, you know, um, why do you want to go through more treatment than what you already have to deal with? We don't need to deal with another thing. We've been blessed with one. We've got him already. 
if we want to have another, we will go and adopt, we will go and look at other options. Right now, the focus is your health and you. So let's just focus on that. We don't need to go through anything more than what you're already going to start to go through. So we decided not to, and I kind of pretty much knew that my I wasn't going to be able to have kids naturally again after because of what sort of chemo it was. Um, the surgery was really hard for me to kind of come to terms with. It took me a good kind of two over two years to try to really be sure that I wanted to do, and I kind of pushed back quite a bit. Um, and the only reason for that was <clears throat> I don't feel I got enough guidance on what the impact of having a nephrectomy would be on me as an individual being at my age on the long term. So I had to do a lot of self-learning, a lot of online research and everything to try to educate myself. Yeah, I've definitely heard from patients and also friends and colleagues who've gone through that process. They've reported very similar things, just that that knowledge about how it's going to affect your body afterwards and how you're then going to cope with some of those long-term side effects. And sometimes they're more of an issue than the actual cancer treatment that you initially had. Um, and I think that's really important to recognise that even once you have essentially got rid of any cancer, you then have to go through other things that could be preventative, but will also impact your quality of life. Um, Absolutely. And so I think that's what the key part is, to be honest with you, Joe, that you said that... Um, Sometimes it feels like it's worse than the cancer. I mean, people can think that, you know, and I, I'm always careful about saying that because I always say to people, I'm not, and I've heard people say this to me, say it to me before, but don't be ungrateful. You're alive. And it's not about that. It's what I always say to people, you know, that's like kind of saying to a veteran who's, you know, been at war and not, you know, and has unfortunately lost his legs. You say, oh, be grateful you're alive. Yeah. yeah I've lost my legs. What do you mean be grateful? Yeah. He is grateful for being alive. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have the pain or the sorrow of losing his legs. It's the same concept, you know, not extremely, but a different concept of, you know, when you've had cancer. Yes, I'm grateful that I'm alive and I'm grateful every single day of my life. And I think anybody who's been through cancer will say that, that yeah. you have a different sound of gratitude in you that you can't even explain. Um, but the reality is you do have to live the rest of your life. And yeah. you don't want to live it in pain for the rest of your life. Um, and, I, and that's what I didn't want. I didn't want to live the rest of my life in, you know, knowing that I could end up with, you know, <coughs> arthritis or be crippled or end up on a wheelchair a lot earlier than my age because of having this. Yeah. Um, and there's so much um, out there, so much noise out there about different forms of things that you can take, like, and so many people constantly feeding into you to say, oh, have you tried this? Oh, have you you've got to love the hearsay my friend's mum said this <laughs> i know you're just like come on i've been doing i've been through this for six years do you think i've not tried all of these options right <laughs> and it's all coming from a good place don't get me wrong everybody yeah. gives you all of that but it's coming from a good place in their heart because they're just trying to help and not see you in pain yeah, um, but it can get quite draining because you just don't want to say, yeah, try it, and then to think you're dismissing them. But yeah. At the same time, it's like, yeah, been there, done it, not worked. Um, yeah. Interesting, I just had a conversation today with my GP about HRT because I spoke to them a few, a few weeks back and they were going to refer me to a menopause clinic about it. And um, <coughs> the menopause clinic came back and said, um, we can't give her HRT. 
Um, and I kind of had a bit of a debate with my GP saying, like, I know you're the professional here, not me. I said, but I've read hundreds of articles and newspapers and studies and this and that about how HRT actually doesn't affect, um, or there's very little study to show that it affects breast cancer. Is that the case? And da, da, da. And she said, yes, there can be a debate and argument on that, but your cancer was estrogen positive. So that rule doesn't apply to you. That rule applies to somebody who didn't have breast cancer and then went into menopause. I was like, ah, okay. So this is where other people also don't get the link, the connection between it. They see me just as somebody who's had menopause. And it's like, well, go and get HRT. And it's like, well, no, I can't kind of do that. Because HRT is an estrogen replacement, which defeats the purpose of me having my ovaries removed in the first place. Yeah, I reckon we could do a podcast just <laughs> on the menopause. Like, oh, Naaman will love it. <laughs> and actually my my husband works for a corporate company and he does a lot of edi work and he's just brought in loads of support mechanisms for people going through the menopause but also for friends and relatives and he's blessing anyone who doesn't know me i had to go through ivf quite a few times and i was put artificially into the menopause and oh my god he knew how difficult it was to live with someone who's going through the menopause so i think that's what gave him his passion to think do you know what actually <laughs> these women need support but also don't so do anyone who's living with them <laughs> absolutely and i think for me i always say to people the journey whether it's menopause whether it's hysterectomy whether it's you know i don't know um, if you're in a 10 year old i'm in a 10 year remission so i've got four more years to go I always say to people, your cancer journey doesn't kind of end when you get given the, the so-called yeah. clear. It continues in so many different ways, and it might not be officially the cancer, but it's other things then that are connected to your cancer. So, Ayana, I know we could go on for hours about this, but <laughs> you do have a really, really important role that you're now playing um, within your own community, but also much bigger and wider scale. So do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so I'm at the moment in the process of raising awareness um, of breast cancer specifically, because obviously that's the journey I've been through, um, within the South Asian community, Southeast Asian community. Um, and there's several reasons for why I started on that journey. And it all comes back to a few things that I had heard through my treatment when I was going through treatment. So when I when I was going through treatment, I went into this um, kind of blocked tunnel. I literally had blinkers on. I pretty much put my head down and just powered through my treatment. Um, and the only person I could see at the end of that tunnel was my, my four-year-old son. And I kept telling myself, Ina, you've got to pull through. Every time I felt like I couldn't do it or I told myself, Ina, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it. I need to quit. Um, I used to say to my husband when I was really struggling through um, chemo, um, I would kind of, I always say to people, I'd kind of fall. I'm human. I, I fell as well. But I never allowed myself to fall rock bottom where I could pick myself back up again. Kind of bounced up and down like a, like on a bouncy castle, really. I'll probably say I just didn't touch the ground enough. Um, and I just put those blinkers on and I just saw my son at the end and I said, okay, that's that's where I've got to end up. So through that journey, I didn't really, I wasn't on social media. I wasn't, did, pretty much didn't have my phone around me. So my um, brothers, my brother's sisters and my parents basically became this very protective bubble around me. They cared for me. Um, I moved in with my parents because I wasn't able to kind of be on my own. And they created this invisible bubble around me. 
And I don't know if you've seen the Incredibles, they do this invisible bubble <laughs> around the characters. And that was pretty much what my family had done. It's only when my treatment ended that I heard so many things that they heard from people outside, like family, friends and communities and relatives and stuff. And it was things like, um, tell Ina to wear a black bra and the cancer will go away because black represents evil. Um, um, Ina must have done something wrong in life. So this is some form of punishment from God. Um, somebody had said, um, tell her not to have any treatment and just pray and ask for forgiveness and she'll be fine. She needs to have more faith. It's because she doesn't have faith that she's relying on the medication in order for that to cure her. Um, and that's just some of the things that they had kind of heard. Um, somebody even said, um, called me sister in, in the terms of, in an Islamic, because I'm Muslim, but in Islamic terms, because I was wearing a kind of like a headscarf to cover my obviously bald head and um somebody saw me in a shopping mall which nobody's ever referred me to as and said oh um oh hello sister and I kind of did this and looked around because I was with my two sisters and I kind of walked past thinking she's not talking to me but it was because I, I think that was the realization oh my goodness she's talking to me I'm I'm the one I'm, I'm the sister she's talking to because I'm the one with the headscarf on and um, and I realized what people's perceptions were all of those things made me realize that goodness me there's a real lack of education and knowledge around breast cancer within the south asian community there's a real sense of um some um i was talking to my oldest brother about my um breast surgery because i was batting between um having a mastectomy or a lumpectomy um because i was given the option eventually that i could have a lumpectomy if i wanted to and um a friend of a friend heard me having a conversation and actually said to me, she was my age, um, and actually said to me, I can't believe you're speaking, her exact words were, I can't believe you're speaking to your brother about a boob job. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> I said, I am not speaking to my brother about a boob job. I'm speaking to my brother about my breast cancer surgery. Um, that's very, very different. And um, she said, I wouldn't even dare say the word breast in front of my brother. Forget um, talking to him about my surgery. And I think all of these things made me really realise that there's a real lack of education, knowledge, openness about breast cancer. Um, and I think breast cancer more than cancer because the word breast is such a sexualised word in general within the South Asian community because culturally I believe most of us were brought up quite um, in a modest way, especially with our bodies and women and traditionally how you should dress it's, it's, it's quite it's all very very modest women aren't generally brought up um to be quite outwards or you know to be openly speaking about body parts and things so when you talk about a woman getting breast cancer you know when i started to speak to more people they're like well, why don't you just say you had you had you had cancer why are you telling people you got breast cancer they didn't want me saying that i had breast cancer um I was then invited on to Victoria Derbyshire show in 2017, um, yeah, 2017 or 2018, to talk about the stigma and taboo of breast cancer within the South Asian community. And when I attended her show, I have, I don't have a very common name to be fair, so it's quite easy to find me on Facebook. I don't think it's going to end up with hundreds of Ina Butts on this, not the way mine is. Um, quite a few people searched my name and private messaged me, and. The sort of messages I got, I won't lie, really, really broke my heart. I had women from 
I mean, every southeastern Bakla, I had Bangladeshi and Hindu Sikhs, Muslims, Pakistanis, Indians message me. Some had said that their um, husband had left them during treatment because they said, you're not the woman that we mar- that I married. Um, another woman told me her kids had been taken away from her because they said that people find out that your do- your mum's got breast cancer, the daughters won't be ma- get married in the community. Nobody will want to marry their daughters. Um, so she was taken away from her daughters. Another one had to hide it from her family. Um, and only her in-laws knew who she lived with. So her own parents and brothers and sisters didn't know. And she had to hide it. Um, others, um, even till today, with some of the work I do, um, they will attend some of the um, focus groups I do, the small ones. But they will not want their names shared. They don't want their pictures taken because they said some of the families know they've got cancer, but they don't know what extent they've got cancer, what grade it was. Um, and I think all of that made me really realise that I guess there's two, three key different things that I found. One, I think there's like the lack of education and knowledge within the South Asian community about breast cancer and what it means. There's um, a real stigma and taboo around it not just knowledge, but a stigma to be about even talking about cancer in general and the link to mental health, which are links to that stigma and taboo. And I think the third one um, for me was the lack of awareness of does cancer even affect us as South Asian people? Honestly, things that you have said, like I've been qualified 20 odd years now and some of the things you've said have just resonated with me that I know that I've said to patients saying, oh, well, why don't you talk to your family? Have you got support from your family? And I am literally sitting here going, how naive was I? Like there was a reason why they couldn't and that they were reaching out more to me or to the clinical staff or to the information support staff. And honestly, it's almost like a bit of a light bulb moment of actually some of those patients who I were urging to go, oh, you know, you should really try and talk to your family about how you're feeling and, you know, have you got support mechanisms in place at home? Um, Definitely resonate with me. And I I definitely, I used to do a lot of femcare talks um, to um, usually um, gynecological patients. And I know from that experience that, you know, there were some patients who would literally just sit there going, oh my gosh, I can't believe she's talking to me about sex and sexual intercourse and pleasure and anything like that they were like horrified you could physically see them going oh my gosh please be quiet but I never I never thought about it for a breast cancer patient how weird's that that I just hadn't hadn't necessarily made that same link I think that's because um actually another thing I was actually sorry going to say was I just remembered was um the lack of um, representation for me is a, is a, that's one of the biggest pushes I'm trying to do now. That for me is a really big issue. Um, you know, I'm Muslim, British, Pakistani, I always say that. I was born here, I've been raised here. Um, I'm quite open-minded and liberal, but the reality is, if you put me on a beach, would I wear a swimming costume or, I don't know, or, or you know, you know, shorts and, and a tankini or something. Yes, I would. If you told me to go and do a photo shoot in my bra, no, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't. Um, because 
that's just not how I'm raised. I'm not raised to have my body, even semi-nude, out for the world to see in an environment where the eyes are going to be on me. That's not how I'm raised. And I can assure you, from the most people that I have spoken to, major not, I'm not saying all South Asian people, because that would be generalising, and it's not all, because I know many who are okay to do it, and that's absolutely fine. But a majority of many South Asian people are not okay with that because that's not how the country brought up, you know. And, and I find what's happening is because the lack of representation, this is feeding into this thought process of we don't get breast cancer or we can't talk about it because when an advert does come on TV and you see a white British woman or a middle-aged white British woman who's got a bra on or topless and you're with your family and your parents and your kids, you change your damn channel when you're South Asian. <laughs> like, skip, you know, EastEnders is on, it's a kissing scene, skip, forward here, you know, because you're not brought up to think that that is normal. Like you said, Joe, about the whole sexuality concept, it's not a conversation we are brought up having. It doesn't matter how liberal you get. Um, so this lack of representation is just f adding fuel to the fire in my mind because it's making, you know, I say us being South Asian, it's making us think that, well, I'm not affected. Yeah, it's, it's funny you said about, um, well, I suppose an example for me is when, whenever I've been to India to watch a Bollywood <laughs> film, all the swear words are cut out or any of those kind of scenes, kissing, they're just not there anymore. So you can watch the exact same film here and you'd have everything there, but in India it's all censored. Or they'll, even the subtitles, they'll change it. So instead of a rude word, it will say, I don't know, something completely different that has nothing to do with it. But that, I know, Joe, you said that it's not nice and you're thinking you're naive. I don't think that's fair to say because maybe at the same time you haven't necessarily had that education. If you think people growing up in a sheltered environment, say like me when I grew up in India, I wouldn't have known there was kissing scenes because they were all censored out. It's the same way. It works both ways. It's the education side of things. But now it's the way we're talking about mental health more. These sort of conversations about different communities, I think people are more confident to openly discuss it. Um, I think one of the stats, um, I know you didn't say the stat, but talking about why Southeast Asian communities may not know that breast cancer affects them. Yeah. I think one of the stats you've shared before through Instagram, I know, is... I think it's one fifth yeah. of Southeast Asian communities believe that breast cancer only affects white middle-aged women. I was very yeah. shocked by um, that there stat. Was actually, um, that study um, was done um, by ELC UK and Ireland, a breast cancer campaign. And actually there's a few key ones that came out of it, which like you said, I've shared on my Instagram page. And it's that South Asian women are least likely to do a self-examination as well, um, compared to any other ethnicity. Um, and like you said, one in fifth don't even believe it affects and honestly it doesn't surprise me um and the only if you if you'd asked me that six years ago before my cancer i would say surely that's not right that can't that's that's way too high that doesn't make sense but actually it's as if since i've had cancer and i've started this all this charitable work that i'm doing my life is i will use the word consumed but that feels like it's a bit negative. I'm not saying in a negative way, I love what I do, but it's kind of consumed around breast cancer people. You know, I either meet people who've had breast cancer or going through breast cancer or just been diagnosed or going for a checkup. And everybody I speak to, I would say more than 80% of them have similar thought processes 
and I now don't get shocked anymore. Actually, it saddens me now more than gets me shocked. I'm past the anger and frustration to kind of, all right, what the heck am I doing to try to play my tiny little part within the bigger system to try to make things shift and change? Because things have got to shift um, and, and change. But I think one of the other stats within that was that one in 20 don't even feel comfortable due to cultural barriers to self-examine. That's crazy. You know, you're self-examining yourself in your own house. Yeah, and it, I mean, th this is really this is why this is so important. Is, I mean, there are many people from you know non-white backgrounds, if you want. Um, I know we've had a conversation about the term "bame," um, but or people of color or from a different community. But so there's a few. So I looked at some of the obviously there's a census last year, wasn't there? But the last one was a 2011. Um, so the reason why, again, why I think this is so important is the Office of National Statistics. I always get this wrong. The ONS. Um, so they found, so London's always the, the main example because it's the capital, but 40.2% of Londoners identified from an Asian, black or mixed or other background, I think of which I think is 18.5% um, identified as Asian, which is, I mean, that's a huge number of people, if you think. So that that's an amazing stat in itself. But um, so obviously Southeast Asian, that's India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal and Bhutan as well. That's that's six quite big big areas, big communities that you know they do come here from all all sort of kind of backgrounds, um, and they'll settle here for a long thing. And that large number, I think, from across the country, can't quote me on this. But I'm I can just see you now going, difficult. "Oh, I'm going to say a stat, but is it the right one?" <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the plus or minus margin is, but I tried very hard to calculate this, and I did check it three or four times, but. Of the population from that consensus, 11.8% identified as female Southeast Asian sort of people, if you want. Um, again, that is a huge amount of people who may not, you know, if you think of that one fifth um, statistic, that's exactly. a lot of people. And I think that's what's worrying. I find, um, I think there's another um, a study that was done in 2015. Um, I will try to find and let you know after, if you want to see the research. I can't remember who the study was done by. Um, but the study was done and it basically said that um, Southeast Asian um, people, women are least likely to go for their mammogram than other communities um, um, ethnicities and compared to um, your white British women and um, a lot of the reasons for that is again I feel from people that I've spoken to is because of um, you know, when I speak to a lot of women for why they don't go, it's it's the shame that's attached to it about going to a breast examination. It's the lack of tailored support in the sense of the shame of being topless and again being nude and having to take your clothes off, even though it's in front of another woman. Um, the lack of information, actually, of what that is going to happen, the lack of um, tailored um, information in the sense of language barriers. Some women don't even have a clue what they're going for. Yes, they get a letter through the post. Yes, it's in English. But... That letter is no different to a male shot, you know, junk mail of their post that they read, rip up and put in the bin again. I, so I've definitely witnessed that before. Um, even as a student actually working in outpatients and people coming for an oncology appointment, they had no idea what the terminology oncology was and, you know, totally 
floored by the fact that an oncologist was just telling them that they had cancer and they were like no I've just got a cold literally have just got a cold and I was going for a chest x-ray because they just wanted to see if I had a chest infection um, so I've definitely witnessed that firsthand um, and even now I think we're better in terms of um, providing information leaflets and booklets and and even online but actually if you don't access any of that or or you know you're you're within your bubble exactly like you put earlier your community bubble you wouldn't you wouldn't see any of this so it's kind of how we're fit infiltrating through that really i think that that's exactly what happens though is that bubble that you're saying um and this is where what i'm trying to do with the charity bit of work is um so i always say to people i've, I've been i'm in talks with mcmillan and breast cancer now about similar things and um trying to get their support in doing things differently and the one thing i said to both of them was um it's all and again i, I think i said this earlier to you guys i can go off on a bit of a tangent about this because i i can i can get very very um emotionally invested in something because i can see things not changing or they're not changing fast enough and it baffles me how we are in the 21st century and we like the statistics you gave them and of what over 12 percent of these people are south asian how are we not still we recognize there's an issue why are we not doing things differently to the norm in order to make that change you have this is a community that doesn't come out of their bubble yeah. so why are we not going into the community or is it that or is it that we think that we're doing enough from an EDI perspective, we're not being specific enough. Are we trying to do something that is BAME orientated, that isn't necessarily looking at society, cultures, religions, specifically, and breaking it down? Can I say something that's going to rock the boat a little bit? Oh no, we love it on the podcast. Go for it. Absolutely go for it. I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think we do think we're doing enough. I'm sorry, I really don't think we do. I have spoken to enough big charities over the last few months, year actually, over a year. I have spoken to people's heads of EDI teams. I have spoken to social media teams who are looking at diversity. You cannot tell me that you are trying to target a diverse market when your diversity team has got nobody diverse. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I know yeah. that's really calling you out and I want to get really shot down. No, no, absolutely not. We love it. No, and no, you are. You're absolutely right. We said I've been in lots of situations where I've, I've been asked for opinions and I'm like, I will be an ally. I will absolutely call people out, but I am not the person to represent represent um i speak to leanne Pooh quite a bit i've been to i went to her photo shoot and, and, and supported her with her photo shoot that she really recently did for black women rising but the reality is i'm not black i cannot um i cannot um understand the challenges or represent her and support her in her representation for the challenges and actually me and her had a really interesting conversation when i went for a photo shoot I said about this whole terminology of BAME and how I absolutely hate the BAME terminology because I don't think it's I don't think it makes sense in this concept of um, healthcare um, being tailored. 
And she said, that's interesting because I agreed. And I, she said to me, why do you think it's not, it doesn't fit? I said, because Leanne, the black community is concerned more of what Leanne is fighting, for example, from all the conversations I've had with her, is more about, um, you know, having the right wigs, for example, having the right coloured prosthesis that aren't matched to their skin colours. I spoke to about 15 other women who were there at that photo shoot, all of them black women, who said that they went to these makeup classes that you get for breast cancer patients and they did not have the right colour foundation for them. It was for not dark skinned people. How are you telling cancer patients to come to a makeup class and you don't have dark coloured foundation for them? Asian people's challenges are not that. Theirs is they don't even believe the glimmer disease exists. Forget trying to get a haircut or something. Yeah. We don't want to leave our house. She has um, focus groups and people show up to that focus community group. I get people private messaging me on my Instagram because they don't want to even comment on my post in case other people see it. Very different challenges. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about the prosthesis. Um, I've had a, a patient with very dark skin who, when, yeah, we just, just had a review, a breast cancer patient, and they just said, yeah, I was offered a prosthesis, but it was very, very kind of white or even slightly tanned yeah. colour. And they were told, just you can just paint it black. I, 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 yeah, I can't believe that. That was advice. Um, I know there is a lot of work being done now looking at different sort of shades or skin tones for prostheses and you know things like that there are lots of more well there's a lot more research going into it now which is nice to see but I does suppose. it need but research if we're gonna go, be like said, um, if we're but... gonna if we are gonna almost throw things out of the box <laughs> do you need bloody research or oh, you're gonna have to put an expletive now on the podcast <laughs> but do you need do you need research to justify because <laughs> would we do research for white people like would you would you go oh we need to do we need to get no. some white prosthesis would you go is it evidence-based how psychologically is that going to impact those patients we wouldn't so so i get the research and some of the research is on different yeah, themes right. but just sometimes i think why invest in that area when you could just pay more money to specialize in providing the service or the care that these patients need Some of the skin tone research was already there. So L'Oreal, when they did their different shades, they used, I can't remember the exact number, but it was, I think, around 400 plus different shades of skin tone. So that's that research is already there. So that's probably more of the research I was talking about. Um, but I think it's utilising what's there and then, yeah, almost matching it if you want. Um, but that's not there in the NHS yet. But... I know, I know we've talked quite a lot about stigma, especially for the Southeast Asian community. Um, I don't know, how, how are you going about yeah, trying to tackle so it or how can I we help tackle it? Little on me is trying to do what I can on my own. <laughs> but, um, there's only so much I can do on my own. Um, and, you know, anybody that can help spread the voice. Okay, what I'm doing at the moment is I've got a few smaller bits of things that I'm doing from what I've seen from the community that I've been speaking to over the last six years of me having cancer and different people I've connected, especially over the last you know two, three years of specifically branching out and having my Instagram page and speaking to cancer patients is I've got a, I've got a um, small kind of network um, sisterhood group called Cancer Chai and Chat. 
and I basically hold small groups um, off-site in kind of a hotel. It's for just 10 people and it's a place where South Asian women can come, connect, learn, speak to each other. I don't advertise who's attending, names don't get mentioned, pictures are not taken when you're there. The only picture that goes up onto social media is to advertise at this date on this time. Can you private message me to book your slot? Um, it just gives people a safe haven, I guess, to connect with like-minded women and women who are going through a journey like them. Um, I will give a very small, quick example that when I was going through, when we did the first one, sorry, I've got my son's son right behind my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> does he does he get used to you talking about this as well? <laughs> So when we did the first Cancer Chai and Chat, um, one of the girls who turned up had already had her breast reconstruction surgery. Another one who was there at the same time, she was due to have hers. Um, and when they started to talk about what different surgeries they had, the one who was about to go and have hers had never heard of the one that the other one had had. And actually, she got a bit of information on it. The others kind of gave their input, said, oh my goodness, no, you should definitely get all your options. Don't just go with what one option your oncologist or surgeon is giving. You should do it because these are some of the options that we've heard, da, da, da. And they got talking. And then I asked all of them, I said, do you want me to set up a WhatsApp group with all of you guys together? You don't have to if you don't want to. That way you can share things until the next one comes along. And they said, yeah, sure. Only for a month later for that same girl to message saying, thank you so much for sharing that information. Because actually now I've been given more detail. And actually, I'm going for that surgery, which I never knew about before. And that's a very small example of a win in that situation. You know, that individual um, has not told people outside of the community about her diagnosis. Um, so she's not going outside of that bubble to get information. Um, so I've got that cancer try and chat that I hold. I've got my next one hopefully booked for the first week of Feb. I've recently just done, um, released a campaign called um, Taking Two For Me. And done a photo shoot with eight different South Asian breast cancer survivors. <clears throat> and Taking Two For Me is a campaign basically, which I've linked with a few other lines of for her, for me, for them, for me. And basically the concept and the story links in with take two minutes once a month to do your self-examination because if you don't care for yourself you can't care for your loved ones and I think the main reason for doing that as a story link was because as South Asian I think women in general but specifically South Asian women everything you do you do as a community when you get married you get married to the guy and his whole family <laughs> where you get you know do anything it's a very community-based attitude you know and thought of you know celebrating new year just me mother half when my mum and dad are around, just seems so wrong. So how dare you do that? Everything's very community and family orientated. So I realised that the only way to get out to the South Asian community to get them to look after themselves and it not being selfish to care for yourself as a woman is to say, well, actually, if you take that two minutes to look after yourself, you're keeping yourself healthy, which means you can then in return look after the people that you love. Because if you're not around, who's going to look after your loved ones? Um, so it's kind of spinning it around a little bit that way. 
Um, I then also do workshops in schools. Um, I've got um, two workshops booked um, this month and next month in colleges now as well. And I'm reaching out to universities as well now to do breast awareness workshops for young girls um, to talk about self-examination. Because I think if self-examining comes a key part in people's young girl's life like we get up in the morning and check our mobile phones like we you know check our emails and our whatsapp and our tiktok status and everything else if we do that once a month we could prevent people getting diagnosed at much earlier stage and it will open up those conversations Ayana, do you have um because obviously i work at a university so i help teach healthcare professionals for the future but is there anything that you've seen as part of the work that you do for people who are working in the hospitals or you know in my head I'm thinking do therapeutic radiographers who come from that community go back and help promote just with conversations or is it exactly the same they do something at the hospital but it's not really talked about have you seen that at all So I'm just thinking whether or not, because we have lots of um, Southeast Asian students, is is it something that they would go back into their own communities and openly talk about? Or is it that you would imagine something that they kind of know they take x-ray pictures or do something very technical or medical, but it's not really talked about what it is that they really do? And do you think that's that could be a way for us to maybe start to break down some of those barriers? I think so. I think it's, um, from a lot of the people that I have spoken to, I think it's very separated. That's my job. That's very, yeah, medical orientated. It's, you know, scans and x-rays. They're done, dusted, and then I'm home. Um, I think it's very, very separated. I know a lady who's a radiographer, and um, she's got two, two, three, two daughters and a son, and she does not talk about self-examination with her daughters. Because her husband is not... Um, does not promote the fact that um, she should be talking to her daughters about their bodies. Yeah. Um, so it's not something that happens in the house. It's not something she's brought up talking about with her mum, with her grandparents. So it just stops there. Um, and I find that's what the problem is. Maybe if... I think you kind of have to go out into the community in order to do something different. That's yeah. why I've now got... Um, this year, in the next two months, I've got workshops booked in at mosques for women and young girls. I've got two in mosques, two different, three different mosques. I've got them, two in Gurdwaras. I've got one in a temple at the moment as well, booked in. Because I've realised, actually, this thought process, like I said earlier, that somebody said to me, you know, you must have done something wrong in life and it's a punishment from God. There needs to be this clear separation for people to realise that going to get treatment is not deceiving your faith. Actually, they can go very, very much hand in hand. Um, and my dad said something really amazing to me when somebody said that to him that your daughter must have done something wrong in life and um, my dad realised that I found out and he said to me my dad is very religious prayed five times a day always has done and my dad said don't listen to people who say that to you have faith and do your medication the medication is going to try to keep you alive and your faith is going to give you the strength to go through that journey you can't do one or the other without each of them they both go joint together so have your faith because that's what's going to keep you going through that treatment. And I think that really stuck a chord with me that he's right. That's exactly what it is. That's quite yeah. nice to hear because faith doesn't have to necessarily always be religion as well. 
some of it i mean you look we talk about spiritual care if you want with patients now that doesn't mean you need to have someone from a holy background talking to you it could yeah. just be as you said your faith you that you believe in someone that's going to keep, keep you alive you believe in, whatever yeah. that is um any sort of faith you know i think everybody has some faith it doesn't like it doesn't have to be religion um is what keeps it going so i'm hoping that going out into the community and doing workshops will help start those conversations more and normalize those conversations um, and the one key thing where I really need massive amounts of help is where I'm reaching out to the bigger charities. And I'll be honest, again, probably rocking the boat a bit. I'm coming against, <laughs> I, I, t I tend to rock the boat quite a bit, but I don't think you probably told by now. <laughs> I'm coming against a bit of a brick wall. Um, is I it's want fine. to release modest breast cancer campaign flyers with South Asian faces on them. Not um, a diverse campaign with five women where one's white one, one's black one's asian and three are white no i want a breast cancer campaign with south asian women so that when women walk by they see a face that's like them i want them to be in some maybe common southeast asian language like gujarati hindi urdu punjabi for people who don't speak english as a first language um to be able to see that now i've already started to and i said this to a few of the bigger charities that i've spoken to I said, look, I'm calling out for help because I need some sponsorship to support me to do this. Because again, little on me on my own is going to be very hard to push through at a wider market than what I can do, wider reach. But I will not rely on bigger charities to help me to then start. I will still keep carrying on and doing what I'm doing until eventually someone listens to me moaning and having a rant and decides to help. <laughs> I will keep pushing through. Um, so that's what I'm doing at the moment, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a lot. It's very, it's amazing. Um, I'm sure lots of people listening will find it, you know, very inspirational, or even as, as Joe said, as a starting point for something else. Um, and, and that's the main thing, really. I know with the stigma we touched on uh, a bit about stereotypes. I know from my own background to being Indian, you got the the good fun stuff, so the smoking, drinking, alcohol, um, so the traditional views of not having sexual partners outside of marriage. These are all kind of the four core things that I was always told, be careful, it might cause problems in the future. But I know there's a, a study done by King's Fund recently. Um, I can't remember the year now, um, but they compared, so uh, exactly as you said, splitting up BAME into what it actually is, so black, Asian, etc. But so for Asian kind of the Asian patient group, comparing them to a white patient group, they actually found that they had lower smoking um, rates compared to the white groups. Um, I think black and Asian background women have a lower risk profile, um, especially for breast cancer. So, um, so I don't know, lower right alcohol consumption, sort of vegetable-based diets, if you want. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That, that wasn't in the research, but I think it probably should have been. But, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, and then I, I think as you said as well, it was about the community gossip. So obviously, again, uh, from my experience in India is all the wherever you live is in a community, whether it's gated or not, but there's always one way in, one way out. So everyone knows you're basically on top of each other. So that family element is huge. Um, but interestingly related to that, although you have your support bubble, Southeast Asian women, I think yes. in the King's Fund research said, they have higher rates of depression post-treatment um, 
which again ironically is another big no-no in from from our backgrounds is southeast asian community any mental health issues are kind of classed in the same boat as cancer where there's a lot of stigma around it isn't there yeah, um, it's, study I read in yeah, it's not nice to hear i suppose but south asian women suffer from significantly higher um uh, rates of depression symptoms than white british women and i think i'll be honest with you i don't know if i've ever shared this actually on my insta page but because i went into action mode during treatment when I came out on the other end, I kind of went back into work full time as normal, kind of like nothing happened. And then my um, treatment plan kind of obviously started to shift and change the remission plan. And then I think it must have been about a year later, I went into really severe depression and anxiety. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't leaving my house. I didn't want to meet anybody. And um, if anybody did call and speak to me, I would sound completely normal. Um, but when I'm inside the four walls of my house, I would be constantly crying. I would be screaming and shouting at my son for absolutely no reason. And then feel guilty that I've shouted. Then hug him crying, apologising to him like hysterically, feeling bad. And then feeling guilty that I'm putting it on him that I'm crying. And all of this kind of constant whirlwind. And I then started to get really frustrated because I was like, why am I now sad a year later? How ungrateful am I for being so sad now, a year later? I should be okay now. And I realised why it was. It's because I never went out and seeked help or support or spoke to anybody going through that journey with me. Um, I used a service, and I'm not going to use a name because I don't think it's fair to. <coughs> I used a service um, just after my treatment ended. And to seek out to support, get support from somebody who's kind of, you know, going through a similar journey to mine. And I was matched to someone similar like me. And that person was a... 50 plus year old middle-aged um, white woman who had had breast cancer over 30 years ago when she was 30 years old. That's nothing like me, other than the fact that we're both 30 when we were both diagnosed. Anyway, that was 30 years ago she was diagnosed, and she's white. They could not match me to any South Asian people, any. Um, and that's when I started to feel this sense of being very lonely, because I was like, I can't be the only Asian person who's 30 who's got cancer. Surely there's other people like me and they're blimmin' Raleigh. There's more than I would like. Um, there's no support out there. I got nothing, I'll be honest with you. I wasn't guided to anything. You, it, you do just get pin-dropped, left, after your treatment ends. And then you're like, where do I go from here? And then when you're in a community where people have got this attitude of, all right, get up, get on with it, and just kind of move on, um, which is a lot about, I think, um, from a community perspective as well, you just get that brush off and you kind of keep going. Um, you then don't talk about stuff. And then the world around you carries on moving because you now start to look like yourself, like you used to pre-cancer, because uh, your hair's now growing back and you look like yourself, but you're not yourself. I, I describe it to people as... Um, the outside of me looks the same, but the inside of me is a different person. And I really struggle, and I think I did a video on this in my Insta page, that I sit sometimes around family and close friends that I've known all my life, and I feel like an imposter, and it sounds so bad. I feel like a stranger sitting in a room, because they're looking at me as if I'm the same minor, and I'm sitting there looking around thinking, what in the world am I doing here? Because I'm not the same person anymore. So it's... I think that the shame within the community makes it so much harder to then speak about the cancer because people don't recognise it. Thank you for sharing that. And I fully appreciate it's a hard thing to kind of go through anyway. But I, th 
I think it's that long lasting psychological impact that maybe people don't appreciate or don't recognize or just isn't necessarily considered um and I think the more we talk about all of this hopefully that recognition will help and you know prehabilitation rehabilitation I think is really important to be able to kind of support patients in recognizing themselves that actually this is totally normal you know getting depression a year two years afterwards is normal and these are these are what you can do or these are the services that you can access whereas I don't think it's necessarily recognized or talked about enough it's almost like go to your GP if you have any difficulties yeah Yeah. Um, and they don't really understand because they're not tailored or they're not specialists in that field so they don't really understand so Ina, we we have well and truly got over our hour, which is amazing. So before we kind of do our wrap up, what can we do? So obviously there'll be lots of radiographers, healthcare professionals, there might be some patients listening to the podcast. What is it that we can do to try and help you and support you? I'd love to be able to go, I've got 10 grand, there you go. Um, <laughs> I don't. But what is it that maybe we can do within our own working lives within our personal lives to try and help support what it is that you're doing i think um honestly it's not even actually about the money i'm very very grateful um for money that i've been able to raise um i've been able to raise thousands of pounds just through family friends and outside networks so money's never been the issue it's about when you have you know if i create a flyer and you have i don't know supported not even sponsored, fine, supported by NHS, supported by, I don't know, Macmillan, or the impact that flyer then has to reach a wider audience, it can then reach out not just to my audience that I have in my world, it will reach out to an audience that you have as a therapeutic radiographer. It will reach out to the, a separate audience that none of them has. It will reach out to another audience. Kind of like network marketing, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> one person knows a lot that goes out. Um... And that's what it is. It's all about trying to reach out to as many people as possible. But it's the only way. And I, I find it the only way that's going to happen is if more and more people shout about it and it doesn't become a fashion trend and it doesn't go off the radar when the fashion's over about EDI. Right now, EDI is very, very up there on the line um, and it's being invested in because of this whole thing that happened with Black Women Rising. I'm just hoping and praying, to be very honest, that that doesn't go out of trend and fashion. That's the honest truth, because I have seen it way too many times of fashion trends even within the healthcare um, because of budgets. Um, and when budgets get changed, EDI is the one thing that gets pushed to the back burner because it's not as important. Um, but that shouldn't be the case because it is important. People are dying um, and something still needs to be done. We can't be part of a budget. Yeah, that, thank you very much, Ayana. That was a lot of insight. Um, but yeah, th- thank you for everything that you've shared as well, especially your own stories um, and all the research and stuff behind. We'll make sure we link everything in with the post um, for this podcast. But uh, as Jay said, don't want to bore people too much as we've gone over an hour <laughs> thank now. You. <laughs> thank you very much for everyone for listening. Um, <laughs> yeah, so your hosts today have been uh, Naim Jokansen and Joe McNamara. A huge thank you to our guest, Ayana Butt, again 
Um, so head over to our YouTube page and um, you can see the live recording of this podcast as well. Um, if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted uh, along with the links and resources to literature that we've discussed in this podcast. Um, to receive your accredited CPD digital badge, please complete the Google uh, form that's linked with the podcast. Um, our next guest to feature will be Dr. Sarah Hayward-Small, who will be discussing her amazing career in biomedical research and some amazing developments. Um, thank so thank you, you for listening no, no, no. Um, and take care. <laughs>